And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, um, I was in here uh, worship, practicing for worship, and um, and I realized that when I went out, there was a bunch of snow, and uh, I thought, man, that's awesome. Uh, some of you might not be all digging snow, Kristen Johnson, um, but outside of that, uh, we love snow, um, and Christmas, it makes us Remember, doesn't it, kids? Christmas is right around the corner. It's almost there. It's almost here. Um, I remember when I was a kid, it's not like I don't like it now. I love Christmas. But when I was a kid, I remember like being like you, sitting in church, and candles were starting to be lit, and Christmas, it was starting to look like Christmas. And, and we would sing Christmas carols, and I kind of, so everything was just very exciting. And there was the excitement of... Um, candy canes. There was the excitement of the gifts that were going to come. There was the excitement of the great food. There was the excitement of time with our family. Um, guys, what's your favorite Christmas song? What do you think? Anybody? Any of the kids here? Favorite Christmas song? Somebody yell it out. Joy to the world. Good. How about like a song like, do you guys like Jingle Bells? Um, yeah, boo. Uh, Jingle Bells is a great song. There's just lots of great songs, lots of fun songs. Um, hopefully, I was just very glad that nobody said, um, all I want for Christmas is you. That's uh, just, that's, I was, I would have, I would have left right now. Um, but <clears throat> Christmas is an exciting time, and so there's lots of joy in Christmas. Um, mostly, at least. A lot of people just really love Christmas time. Favorite time of the year. It's the most joyful time of the year. For the disciples that are in this text, this, this text that we're going to get to, kids, there's, there's a re- they're, they're joyful. You might remember what was just read at the end. It says that they were joyful. And, and I'm going to take time this morning to try to uncover like, why it is that they're so happy that Jesus is leaving. Their joy kind of makes the joy and happiness that you have at Christmas time just kind of looks like small joy. They had great joy, so excited. So be thinking about what it is that is happening here in this text that makes these Christians so happy. So on the first Advent Sunday of 2019, we began this adventure of Luke. See, faithfully told the eyewitness accounts concerning Jesus. The, the one that Luke is writing to is a man named Theophilus who uh, needed to be assured of the things that he had been being taught, the things that he had been taught, and, and he just wasn't sure about them. So Luke was going and having eyewitness accounts, taking eyewitness accounts to tell him that it was certainly true. And driving home from the office the other night, I listened to the song that we're going to sing at the end, The Lord is My Salvation, and tears filled my eyes. Um, so I realized 
afresh the wonderful things that we've considered over these last two and a half years. Um, well, three years, but two years worth of sermons. And so I started to think, why, why am I so sad about this moment at the end of Luke? And I was thinking, you know, okay, there's, if every sermon averaged, you know, unfortunately or unfortunately, about 50 minutes, and we preach, this is 105, this is the 105th sermon in Luke, so about, I don't know what that adds up to, let's say 90 hours. And each hour, each hour of sermon um, means like 15 to 20 to 25 hours of sermon preparation. I started thinking, well, we've spent, as pastors, we've spent between 1,350 and 18 or 1,900 hours of study and thinking and processing and being with Jesus in it. And I was just overwhelmed by that joy that we have to do that. And we get to share some of it with you. And I was sad, partially, and teary because I realized, you know, I was thinking this is probably, for many of us, our last chance to go through Luke together. Like, so we, we'll jump back into Luke from time to time, whatever, but it's like the chances of us actually going through this book of Luke for two years, again, is, for some of you, it's very possible. For some of us, it's not going to happen. And, uh, and, a, and so it feels kind of like we're leaving Jesus in some way. And so that sounds dramatic, but like, that's, that's the way I feel. I feel as though we've just walked with Jesus for two years, hearing him, listening to him, walking alongside of him with the disciples, questioning him, wondering what in the world is going on. We've watched him love people and spend time with the outcasts. We've seen him heal the leper. We've seen him deliver the person that had the demoniac. We watched him still the waters, calm the storm. We watched him raise the dead. We saw him transfigured. We saw the 5,000 fed. We saw and listened to his teaching with an authority that's never been equaled. I mean, not legalism, not religious tradition, but words from God, teaching not the opinions of man, but truth from God. He taught that sin runs much deeper than just sinful deeds, but that sin originates within our hearts. He taught us that sacrificial and unprejudiced love should mark his disciple in the story of the Good Samaritan. He taught us to pray. He taught us that while following him isn't easy, it isn't complicated. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That no man can serve two masters. Nothing in our lives ought to rival our commitment to him. We've read about his second coming. We've read about the beauty of humility, the reception of mercy, the salvation of sinners like Zacchaeus who were hated. The otherness of his kingdom. The otherness of his kingship. We've seen him enter Jerusalem as the king and answer literally every conniving question of those who wanted him dead. Luke took us then to the cross and challenged us to look hard and long at what Jesus had 
has done to save you and me. We, we saw the institution of the thing we celebrate every Sunday, the Lord's Supper. We've seen his dependence on prayer to his father. We've seen the strengthening he received to face the mob as the mob came to arrest him. We saw uh, Judas betray him. We saw the arrest. We saw the trial filled with lies. We heard all the officials declaring that he's innocent. We watched him become the substitution for a wicked, notorious sinner, a man named Barabbas, which was just a a picture of what he was going to do for us, just notorious sinners like you and me be our substitute. We, we read of how they beat him and mocked him and crucified him. We, we heard him intercede for others as he hung on the cross. We heard him save a penitent criminal on the cross. We heard him give up his life of his own accord. And then we saw him buried, truly dead, very much dead in the grave. He was buried. Then Luke took us early in the morning with the women to anoint his body, only to discover, lo and behold, that his word is true, that he was risen. And after the resurrection, Luke explains to us through the account of those two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, Jesus revealing himself to them and teaching them about the Old Testament, that it all pointed to him. Every prophecy, every vision, prediction, narrative, and teaching was saturated with Jesus. And in this account that we had last week, we saw fresh that we can be certain that he is alive. And we can be certain that he is trusted, that his word is trustworthy. And we can be certain of the distinct promise and intention of the promise of the Father, which is the power of the Holy Spirit on all who follow Christ. And that was just, that's just a sampling of what we've been through. It's been good. It's been good. And I stink of goodbyes. When I leave my, can- my family in Canada, I-, I cry. When I think about leaving here for three months, I cry. Well, well the disciples have felt this kind of grief, this, this grief of goodbye. It was just not that long ago, actually, in the upper room, and John talks about this. We'll talk about it just for a moment later. But he tells them that he's going to leave. Of course, there's the promise of the Spirit and all that, but they're, they're not understanding at all really what was going on. And so he says, I'm going to leave, and, and they are very sad, John says. They're sad and discouraged. What are they in this text? What are they? Joyful, happy, ecstatic. And I want to know why. What, what, what changed? Why, why so sad and now so happy. I mean, this is Mary. Her son is leaving. This is the disciples who have loved Jesus, and now he's finally alive. They've just spent 50 days or so with him, then 40 days with him, and then um, their best friend is leaving. You'd think there'd be sorrow, some level of sorrow, but they leave with great joy. So this morning, I'd like to share three reasons why I think they're joyful. Just from the text, there might be other reasons, but, but these are the reasons from the text. The first, I think, is that the disciples finally understand. They finally get it. Now consider with me the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke for a moment. Do you remember how it begins? You got Zacharias and Elizabeth, right? And Zacharias goes into the temple, and the Lord speaks to him and says, um, he finally speaks after 300 years of silence. The Lord finally speaks and says, you're going to be a dad. All in the temple. Luke began this orderly account 
showing us a series of godly people like Zacharias who are singing out to God and praying to him that he would send his salvation on his people. Whether it was those two or, or whether it was Mary as she sang her song in the early chapters or maybe it was Simeon, the old man, or Anna, the old prophetess. They were looking for the salvation of Israel. Luke records the eyewitness accounts of those people and the shepherds who heard the angels sing at the beginning of the gospel as his people cry out to God to send salvation. And then what, do, what Luke does for us for the next 22 chapters, he tells us salvation's come. So they've been crying out for years. And Luke tells us salvation has come, sent by God in and through the one and only Son, Jesus Christ. And at the end of the gospel, in the very last verse, we see the disciples where? Back in the temple, continually praising God, looking forward to his return. Now, why are they filled with joy? I think because they finally understand. They, they understand Jesus' mission. They understand his message. They understand who he is. They understand that what God has done in sending the Messiah to die, to be buried, to be raised again, and to now be ascended on high, where he's going to send the promise of the Father, the power from on high, and to prepare a place for them. And it has just given them joy. Because they, they get the picture, they get the gospel. And the question that I would have for you and for me, do you understand? We, we, we didn't read all of what Jesus spoke about again in the upper room uh, the night he was betrayed. But, but I remember pointing you to this, and I just talked about it a couple of minutes ago. But it was in John 14 through 16 that he was going to go away. He's going to send the spirit of truth, the promise of the Father, the power from on high to be with them. And then later on in John 16, he tells them, because they, they react in sadness, like I said. But he tells them, he said, look, there's going to be a day when your sorrow will turn to joy. And he says in verse 24 of chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, that their joy would be full. Now, do you feel like your joy is full today? When Jesus said that again, they were sad, but here they're filled with great joy. Again, why? Because they finally understood what Jesus was saying to them. They finally understood God's purposes. They finally understood Jesus' words about his death. They finally understood Jesus' resurrection and all that he had spoken about. They finally are understanding what's going on as he's ascending, uh, this exaltation. They understand what God was doing. They had answered the prayers, or God had answered the prayers of Elizabeth. God had answered the prayers of Zacharias. God had answered the prayers of Simeon and Anna and Mary. And God has done what the angels had proclaimed in song, and so they were filled filled with great joy. They were filled with great joy. We're filled with great joy at Christmas time because Jesus has come. Well, Jesus is leaving, and on a purposeful bent, they understand why all this has happened all of a sudden. It's just kind of culminated in this full understanding, and the result is joy. Finally knowing Finally, understanding the plan of God to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever that included them through the perfect gift of his son just literally filled them with joy. And so, again, I ask, what about you? We, we too can be filled with joy if we understand the good news. And I think this is, it's not that life is easy. There's sorrows in, in, in life, and they're very very difficult, but there's a, there is this, 
joy to be had, this joy to be known, that even in the midst of the most sorrowful of circumstances, there is a deeper joy that doesn't always look like a smile on your face, but a deep joy and contentment and satisfaction when you know that your sins have been forgiven and that this world is not all there is, that our hope is in heaven, where Paul would say to the Colossian church, set your eyes on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you you know this joy? You certainly can. Steve, you certainly can. Second reason, I think the disciples are given hope. Joy comes from hope. Joy comes from the hope that they have. Once downcast, hopeless, now entirely filled with hope. A certain hope that we considered together last Sunday. And when you're sure of something, when you have been made sure of something, you just simply have hope. It's, not just, it's no longer just wishful thinking. It's no longer like, might be true, might not be true. You know it's true. I sat with someone this week and I said, I said, I know in the core of my being that Jesus is who he says he is. I know in the core of who I am that God's word is absolutely true. Do I understand everything in it? I do not. Do I trust it? Absolutely. And I know, hands down, that Jesus, the risen King Jesus, has promised the outpouring of the Spirit. Not just once, but multiple times in my life. There's, there's a certainty that you have as a Christian. When, this is why Luke's writing to Theophilus, so he can be sure of it, certain of it. This is why we're preaching it, so that we can be sure of it and not have it out, kind of languishing out in maybe land. It's true. Jesus is alive. The Word of God is trustworthy, and the Spirit is promised. I think certain hope is what the author of Hebrews gets to when he talks about faith. He says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Um, I think of, uh, if you've seen Indiana Jones uh, in The Last Crusade, and he's supposed to be a man of faith, supposed to trust, and he's stepping out on the ledge, but there's nothing there. And so it's just like he's not sure it's there at all, right? And so he like puts his hand on his heart like this, and he's just like, you know, and of course something's there. That's not faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is not uncertain. Faith is sure. Faith is sure. Faith is trusting that which we've heard and we believe and we cling to. That's faith. That's the Christian faith. It's a certain faith. It's not a wishful thinking kind of faith like maybe this world might think it is because a lot of Christians aren't, aren't sure of it. Listen, friends, are we sure? We, if, if we're sure, we're going to have hope. And if we're sure and we're going to have hope, we're going to have joy. Far from being blind trust or wishful thinking, it's the assurance, the certainty of things hoped for, things like salvation, things that all, all, that, all that Luke has spoken about. These things are true, absolutely true, trustworthy, not just stories, eyewitness accounts of things that happened, truly happened, eyewitness accounts of things that Jesus really did, really said, really said about himself. 
And so verse 51, it says the last, really the last thing that happened in Jesus's life here was he blessed them and he was carried up into heaven. And so that's all Luke says about the ascension. He was carried up into heaven. Um, He'll share more about it in Acts chapter 1, but not much. I've links to a couple of sermons from, uh, from the Acts series from back in 2015-16, but um, the ascension of Jesus uh, is the ground of hope, not only for the disciples uh, who are there on that mountain, but for all believers, both then and now. And so I would just ask you, have you spent any time thinking about the ascension? I mean, there's one verse, and there's another verse, but the New Testament is replete with understandings of the reality of what's happened when Jesus rose and ascended into heaven. Just a couple of things I want to point out this morning about it. The ascension first gives us a picture of the enthronement of Jesus. The ascension gives us a picture of Jesus' enthronement. A passage I've been sitting in recently quite a bit is Philippians 2. And the first section is a beautiful picture of the call uh, or the humility of Christ in informing our humility with one another. But the verse, verses culminate in verses 9 through 11 where we read this. Therefore, because of all these things, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue can, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, guess what the disciples in this moment are getting to see with their own eyes in our text as Jesus ascends? Not just a flying guy in the air, but the actual enthronement of Jesus. As Jesus ascends, what they're actually seeing before their own eyes would absolutely radical, kind of radicalize them in a way that just their lives are changing. The resurrection did so, and then the 40 days with Jesus did so, and then this ascension did so, and then there was the promise of the Spirit that happened in Luke chapter 2 about 10 days after Jesus ascended. They were sure of all of these things. So when they're seeing Jesus go up into heaven, they're seeing the actual enthronement, and from the ground, that's how they're seeing it. And I think, and a lot of people think, that Daniel 7 speaks about the view from the other side. Daniel 7 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one shall not be destroyed. I think for sure that the disciples are seeing from the ground Jesus going into the clouds to be enthroned on the, at the right hand of the Father. Jesus came to earth as a helpless little baby that we sing of and we uh, love, love all of, the, all of the wraps around the Christmas time. Um, but here, he is the Lord of all. He is the high and exalted King of kings. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of man that Daniel speaks of. He is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer. He is our friend. And that's how the disciples saw him. That's how the angels bring him back in, and God the Father brings him in, and this is how we will one day see him as well. Face to face, eye to eye, seeing this Jesus, this risen and ascended Jesus, with thousands of angels around him, worshiping him. The disciples have been seen, uh, been, been given a glimpse of the enthronement ceremony. They've, they've, they've seen what the whole world, including you and I, are going to see one day. 
in all its splendor. They saw the end of the story by way of just a glimpse on that mountain, and no wonder they're ecstatic. And again, one day, he's going to come, and he's going to come on the clouds, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and on that final day, we will see and we will know. But for the disciples, this enthronement is what they're seeing take place right before them. They've already seen, they already know in the book of Acts and come to realize Jesus' enthronement isn't simply the end of the story, but it's the end of the beginning of the story. The Ascension also tells us that Jesus' work was accepted. It was accepted by the Father. It's the Father's vindication of Jesus, and it shows that he's accepted Jesus' work on our behalf. A, a, a wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he made him who knew no sin, God, God the Father made him who knew no sin, that is the Lord Jesus Christ who never committed any sin at all. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse, that reality, that truth revolutionized my Christian life. That God, in eternal love, gave His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He could live a perfect life, a life that we don't live, and die a death for us that we deserve, so that in His righteousness, we would be made alive. And we would have the perfect record righteousness of Jesus, that our sins would be forgiven, and that so His Spirit would be sent to us, and one day we would be completely glorified, and sin is totally eradicated from us, and we would live with God forever. And Jesus' ascension is simply yet gloriously a promise to us that as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to be also one day where he is. The Father has accepted his sacrifice. The Father has called him to be with him at his throne. And we who trust in him, um, yeah, we who trust in him as he's offered in the gospel, uh, we go with him to be at his right hand, to sit with him. And the ascension proves that point. And that's just crazy amazing. So hopeful. Another reason the disciples are filled with hope and joy is because they know that everything Jesus had accomplished meant something. Sacrifice accepted. The ascension also begins Jesus' work of going to prepare a place for us. And that's good news, man. He says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And the ascension is the beginning of that. Going to prepare a place for you. Personally. A place that the world may think we're a little nuts here, but a place that is beyond our imagination. This, this world is beautiful. I, I, I went, you don't, have to, you don't have to go here to see beauty, but I went to Iceland in 2015, and everywhere you go is just crazy amazing. 
but it's under a curse. Beauty is tainted by storms and fires and any number of devastations, but the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us is a place that will be beauty untold with nothing to taint it for you and for me. A new heavens, a new earth without the taint of sin, without the taint of sorrow, sickness, and death, a place where peace will finally be known in full, where the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and good riddance. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus, King Jesus, the risen King Jesus, the ascended King Jesus. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, are you thirsty this morning? Yes. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. You feel the certainty. There is certainty there. Will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light. They will need no lamp. They will need no sun. Why? Because the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is what we can be certain of. This is the good news of great certainty. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us. This is not just a bunch of stuff that Luke happened to write. This is what it all culminates in. So Jesus ascends so that one day he's preparing a place for us, and he's doing that right now. He's interceding for us. He's ruling and reigning, and he's preparing a place for you, Beth, and for you, Andrew, Josh, Lenore, with you in his mind's eye, he is preparing a place so that he can be with you forever. And when you get that, you might understand why these guys are so happy. The ascension of Jesus enables him to pour out the Holy Spirit. In John 14 and 16, Jesus says, I go that I can send you a comforter. In the last week's text, we also saw that he was going to go and he was going to send the promise of the Father. Stay in Jerusalem until I pour out the promise of the Father. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, recounting that same passage, Jesus says to the disciples, wait here and I will send you the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then what we see in Acts is the pouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Again, about 50 days. Uh, it was a celebration of 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover week when a spotless lamb was sacrificed for the deliverance of Israel from, the, from, um, uh, from Egypt from the darkness of Egypt. And now 50 days after the spotless Lamb of God was slain for the redemption and freedom and forgiveness of all who place their trust in Jesus, Jesus ascends. Jesus ascends after 40, so and then the Spirit comes at that 50th day. It's It's a wonderful reality. It was on that specific day that the Spirit is poured out on the church. And, and what, what that meant on that day wasn't simply that the Spirit would empower the disciples for ministry, although that's what happened. And he'll do that continually today. But more foundationally, and considering our text, 
what that meant in that moment of Acts 2 where we see all this power and authority and everything as we see the reality that Jesus really did ascend to somewhere where he actually did send the promise of the... So foundationally, the gift of the Spirit in Acts 2 is, is like this assurance that Jesus really did ascend somewhere to rule and to reign at the Father's right hand where he would send the Holy Spirit to empower his people. We, we can't see him on the throne, but we can know that he is at the right hand of the Father, and that he has poured out his Spirit, and he continues to do so, and he does so by empowering us for ministry. He does so by giving us the gifts for the common good of the church, and he does so that we may know the truth, and the truth will set us free. And he does so that though absent in one way from us, he would actually be nearer to us in another way. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that, why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Not wishful thinking, certainty. That Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. One reason that the Spirit was poured out is so that He could strengthen you with power in your inner man, in your inmost being, in the depths of your heart to do what? So that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. And if Jesus were still walking the planet somewhere, you know, He'd have people around Him everywhere He'd go. There'd be a following and everything, but He'd be in certain places and He'd hop like kind of doing what he was doing last week, going from place to place. But right now in this moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus is on his throne, the Spirit in us, like Jesus is dwelling in a very real, present way in each one of us, strengthening us, working in us, causing us to know him more. I was at Olga's house yesterday for a little bit, and I forget why, Olga, you started singing this, but she, it was a song that um, some of you might know, but it's like, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can feel his mighty power and his grace. How do we know the presence of the Lord? but by the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit causes us to see and to feel and to know and to taste, not just mental assent to Jesus, but his very presence. Last point. The disciples are blessed by Jesus. The last thing I want to leave you with today and immediately before we leave on this sabbatical is this. As Jesus gets them to Bethany, which Joy and I will have the privilege of going to in just a few weeks, and to the Mount of Olives and lifts his hands, what does he do but pronounce a blessing on them? A benediction. Just like we do each Sunday at the morning uh, in the celebration service at the end of the celebration service. He does what the priests in the Old Testament were called to do, to pronounce a blessing from God on his people, a, a, a blessing like the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom, deep peace and joy. 
And Jesus lifts up his hands to bless them, and as he's blessing them, he's taken away. And to consider this for a moment, back in Genesis, the first thing he does is bless his creation. And just a few chapters later, a handful of chapters later, while people have gone away from God and not followed him, he chooses one man named Abraham, and he blesses him. And he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then throughout the history of the Old Testament, we see a God who continues to bless his people. And what do you see Jesus doing here at the very end of his life but blessing people? The very last thing his disciples see Jesus do as he's rising They feel the blessing that he gave them. The last sight they have of Jesus, with all their failures, all the things we've seen, all the things we haven't considered, all their weaknesses, all their unbelief, all their struggles, the very last thing they see in him is blessing them. The perfect Son of God, accomplishing precisely that which was planned by God to redeem a people for himself to dwell with forever. And it's something that we will again see once more, because when he comes again, he's going to bless his people. And as the familiar Christmas song says, um, he comes to make his blessings flow. Where? As far as the curse is found. to his disciples, and to us this morning, that we would be filled with joy. You would be filled with joy, and I know some of you are going through significant pain, but filled with deep assurance and joy that Jesus is ruling, that Jesus is reigning, that he is interceding for us, that his word is true, and that we have the promise of the Father, and that he's preparing an eternal home for us, and and we will either be welcomed into his presence with great joy on that day when we close our eyes in death, or the day that he comes back for us, and we see all is made well. Man, He is Lord. He is ruler. He is master. He is the king. He is savior. He is redeemer, and he is friend. And so when I thought about what to land on as the last thing is this, King Jesus, King Jesus, he is the good news of great certainty. King Jesus is the good news of great certainty, and he's the source of great joy now and forevermore for all who believe in him. And so will you believe in him? Will you turn to him and trust him? Friends, for those of you who who do know Jesus, who have given your life to Jesus, but have kind of forgotten, and you're just in kind of church mode, Men, repent of that and turn to Jesus, who is the King, the risen one, to give you life that you would know and you would understand what he's accomplished. And when you understand it, and who gives the understanding but the Holy Spirit, who opens your eyes to see the truth and to rest in the truth and believe in the truth, that you understand and you are filled with hope, and it culminates in joy. Luke began this gospel writing this, and I'm reading from the New American Standard in this chunk. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, 
to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so for two years, we've considered this truth, the good news of great certainty. And it's my prayer for you and myself that while we end our time in Luke, we would know, man, it's, it's only the end of the beginning. The King Jesus is on his throne. His kingdom is ever expanding yet to this day. And that reality is meant to absolutely fill us with joy unspeakable. As we live in the troubled world, we do. And so may you and I fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. For in Christ alone, our hope is found. And on Christ, the solid rock, we stand all other ground, what is it? Sinking sand. Amen.